Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Thanks for joining us today on the RHA Podcast. Uh, If you're a first listener, you may not know me. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the Managing Director of RHA Executive. And we are a headhunting firm that provide executive search services for our clients throughout Australia. Uh, so certainly if you have any uh, re- requirements in terms of executive leadership roles within your organisations, I'd love to have a chat to you. But one of the other things I do is host the Arate podcast. And it's a great opportunity to talk with uh, senior business leaders about their careers uh, and you get a, some insights that may be of value to people who are looking at their own careers and wanting to learn from those who have walked the path before them. And it's also an opportunity to potentially listen to podcasts uh, with people that you may think could partner well with your organisation. And this is one of those conversations. Uh, Philip Barnes is the Managing Director of CFO Insight. I've known him for about 10 years, and uh, he has a fantastic business where he consults predominantly to small to medium enterprise uh, organisations, probably turning over about $20 million plus, uh, and really helping them with their strategy, uh, not just in relation to their financial uh, requirements, but their broader strategy, and that could be uh, growth, it could be getting into new markets, it could be dealing with a whole range of challenges. Um, and Philip is a, a, a tremendously accomplished uh, strategist and uh, he has an excellent reputation. Um, and we have a great conversation today um, uh, about a few things. Um, you know, how the role of the traditional CFO is changing from being a pure finance oriented role to having a much greater involvement in broader uh, business challenges and opportunities and certainly you know um, that's the capacity in which he works and uh, we're talking about the way that he goes into organizations to get an understanding of their business and their challenges and he has three great questions which we'll uh, unpack a little more in this conversation so when he talks to his clients his first question is who buys your products or services and why? Second question, what do you sell? And third question, how do you make money? And certainly at face value, you know, those questions seem very easy to answer. But when you get into um, the podcast and you hear him explaining uh, the depth of um, awareness that he can get of an organisation by helping them to really unpack what those questions mean to them, Fascinating, And one of the other things that uh, Philip uh, does is he's a, a board member of, um, again, similar type organisations. So great conversation, great guy, uh, originally from New Zealand, but lived in Australia you know, for a long time. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Philip Barnes. Well, hi, Philip. How are you going? Uh, welcome to the RHA podcast. We're having this conversation about two weeks before Christmas. And uh, you're looking forward to having a break? 
I am, absolutely. <laughs> where, what are you planning to do? Uh, I've, over the years, I've developed a process where I work all the way through the Christmas break. Right. And then my family and I go up the coast for a week in January. Why, why do you do it that way? Oh, it goes back to the days when I was a junior accountant and right. we had to work over the Christmas break. Yeah. Um, so what I do now is I backlog some of those tasks that you deprioritise during the hustle and bustle of your week. Yep. And I get them knocked over in Christmas. The other reason for doing it is the Christmas rush has all sorts of issues with it in terms of who's going to get the ham and what are you going to do and who's going to go here and, right. of course, Christmas parties and those sort of things. The time in January is just so much more relaxing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Brisbane pretty much shuts down for the first couple of weeks in January. Not much yep. is happening. So you might as well enjoy it. That's, That's right. I, do. I mean, from a recruitment point of view, I haven't been this busy, I feel like, in years. But uh, we've just picked up two new roles, uh, one being a CEO role. And I've told the clients, look, let's not actually go to the market until mm-hmm. around the 15th of January. Because, as you say, people are away and... You know, they're having fun on the beach. The last thing they want to do is look at Seacore, be headhunted for roles. Um, anyway, Philip, why don't we start with just tell us a little bit about, you know, your current professional responsibilities. Okay. Um, I look after a niche consulting practice called CFO Insight. Right. And I founded that about 12 years ago. And what we do there is we have a number of different client structures, but the main thing is that we help SMEs solve business problems. Okay. And often, if they're startups or new into the market, we help them shape their business, primarily for business success. Um, if I look at my current client demographic at the moment, I've got a couple of startups. Um, we're helping them uh, commercialise over in North America. I've okay. done that quite a few times now, and quite enjoy that. Uh, got a client that was struggling in the uh, in the construction space. They've um, re structured themselves, they've okay. dropped a couple of their business offerings and have gone to what their strengths were. Right. That transition had its challenges, but now they're going really well and profitable. And profitable in a construction space is not something that's sure. very uh, very common at the moment. That sounds, you know, um, I mean, the CFOs are not traditionally regarded as solving business problems and helping companies to achieve successes. What you're talking about is a mandate that seems you know, typically not part of the CFO mand- uh, wheelhouse. So um, you know, what do you think about that? Well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, I think the role of the CFO is changing. Right. Um, rather than just being the arbiter and presenter of numbers, it's becoming a lot more strategic. Yeah. The second thing is that um, I present myself as CFO, but realistically it's it's a management consulting gig. Right. Um, I talk to clients that are somewhat unsophisticated in terms of understanding their business, and I say my role is to introduce you to your business mm-hmm. through the numbers. Right. And so I attach myself to the CFO because it has a certain respect to it. Um, the practice is a public practice, so I, we operate as a chartered accounting firm. So that, that adds a bit of gravitas, if you like, to um, what we do. But primarily, I hold the, I hold the owner's hand. Uh-huh. I show them their business through the numbers. Right. And often you get these light bulb moments where they go, "Gee, I didn't know that." Well, that makes now more sense. What my accountant used to say to me, mm. or so if I do this, this, and this, I'll get a better outcome. And I go, "Well, you do." Right. And so that's that's where it's really coming from. I, I management consulting from the numbers. That's right. pretty much the 
Okay. Like so you're sort of you're wearing this guise of I'm a chartered accountant slash CFO um, as the credibility piece mm-hmm. to enable you to have a much broader impact on a business. And I presume that the type of clients you have would not have their own in-house CFO. Correct. So you're working for them largely on uh, a con- uh, sort of a three-day-a-week type or three-day-a-month type basis, or how does it work? Well, it's a, it's a transitional relationship. Uh, often when you get in there, there's a number of issues that have to be solved and mm. problems that need to be fixed. So it's often more intensive early on. And then you sit back with the client and once you've established what they're ultimately looking to do, you've got a plan in place, you've, the strategy is starting to work, you then start to say, well, what's the best finance structure for this organisation? Mm-hmm. And then you take a step back and that's where you get the right. recruiters such as yourself involved to build the team for them. And, uh, and so you are replacing their requirement to also have an external accountant? Well, they would have that as well. No, absolutely not. In fact, I get a good share of my work from external accountants. Right. Because um, I don't do tax. Okay. Um, I don't do a lot of things that those guys um, do do. And so a lot of them have said to me when I've asked them, why do you give me work? Mm. And they said, we give you work because when the client finishes with you, that's such a better client. Right. We make money off a client that you've played with. Because they're just more financially astute. They are. They know things. They, they are often thinking about transactions, which right. the accountant gets all excited about. Yep. They present information and accounts to them in a manner or in a quality which they haven't had before. Mm-hmm. So it makes their delivery of their service so much easier. Mm-hmm. So they're not wasting time, spending time which is ultimately unbillable. Uh, so it works out really well. Right. It's a good okay. relationship to have, actually. Good. And, you know, from reading uh, about the types of clients, you've worked across such a broad variety of industries and uh, size of business and so on. Uh, it's a real mixed bag. Yeah, it is. A lot of that came about because when I worked in Anderson's for 10 years in their mm-hmm. insolvency group and their distressed company consulting, we were, we were um, put into all sorts of different industries and... Uh, and I quite like that. The first thing I love doing is walking the factory floor mm-hmm. with the client. For a couple of reasons. One is, it's just as a kid, I used to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But as a consultant, you get a feel, you mm-hmm. get a sniff, you can see what's happening. You can see whether the, the, the machines are old, whether they're making a noise. You can see whether the guys are working efficiently. You start to get a real feel for the business. Mm-hmm. And that walk around with a few, well, poised questions, mm-hmm. you get a good a good understanding of the business. Mm-hmm. So that's what I enjoy. But the other thing too is that most businesses have the same problems. It's just the environment that those problems exist in, whether it be construction, whether it be technology, whether it be healthcare, whatever it might be. The problems are the same. Mm. And it's uh, just a matter of applying the solutions to the the industry you're working in. Mm. And I imagine you've developed uh, some very specific intellectual property um, in terms of your methodology. Uh, do you find that when you go into a new client, you're largely using the same tools uh, to get the understanding and then start to deliver the recommendations? Yeah, you, you do. And look, to be fair, um, going back to my Anderson days again, I was fortunate enough to be part of a group across the, the worldwide group of Andersons where they put together this distressed company consulting guide. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about going in and looking at companies in distress. 
Um, but the rules and the process that you follow in that environment are ones that you follow in any environment. Mm. And so I do lean a lot on that mm-hmm. because over the years I've tested it, twisted it, prodded it, changed mm-hmm. it, but you sort of keep coming back to some of the core themes that mm-hmm. are in there. The other thing that's important too is that at no point in, the, in your engagement with a client will you know more about their business than they will. Mm. So the important thing is asking questions, mm. listening, clarifying, and after a while, um, the client will go, gee, you know a lot about my business. Right. And the real response is, no, you know a lot, mm. just that you've been able to tell me because I've asked you. You can unpack it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, let's um, come back and talk about more of that later in this conversation. Okay. But why don't we go back to, you know, where it all began for you. Tell us about, you know, where you were born and mum, dad, brothers and sisters and, and, you know, early life. Okay, for fear that you may terminate this podcast early, I'm a Kiwi by birth. Right. Uh, and my father was a doctor, mm-hmm. um, but he was a frustrated GP. Right. And so in my early years, up to 17, we moved in about eight or nine different places. What frustrated him? Oh... He, uh, he felt some inequity in terms of the um, treatment of patients, okay. in terms of people. He, he would get frustrated with the, uh, the regulatory bodies in terms of health, mm-hmm. so he went and joined them right. to try and make a difference. Uh, and he used to get itchy feet, so we spent three years in the Pacific Islands in a public health environment looking okay. after the islanders there. Um, we spent time within New Zealand's government um, in Wellington, mm-hmm. but I think he finally found himself in hospital administration, mm-hmm. and over the years we've moved around because of that. Right. And uh, uh, what about mum? What did she do? Uh, mum was a dental nurse, school right. dental nurse. Okay. Um, so when she graduated in the mid '60s, um, working women were not the, not the go. Mm. So I I was one of those families that had two working parents. Yeah. But then when uh, Mum had the kids, she decided to uh, to stop. But she right. continues to have an active interest in health and uh, all those sorts of things. And so uh, why was health not a logical career choice for you? It's a really good question, right? I, uh, I was going to go to health. I had a doctor as part of my um, belief. Right. And I remember, I remember the moment I sat down with Dad and said, look, I'm already going to have a crack at this. I really want to do it. And yeah. he said... Can I make a suggestion? I said, well, you always do. You don't normally ask. Uh, and I said, what's that? He said, I don't think you'll be suited for a doctor. Wow. And I said, I said, what is that? He said, I think you're better off in a more business type role. I mm. think you have an empathy and an understanding of how those things work um, better than you have an empathy and understanding how medical work. Right. And uh, so he was the one that really set me on this path. Yeah. And it's only 20 or 30 years later that I realised that he was telling me that because he was frustrated. Right. My father now has retired for 14 years, mm. but he hasn't stopped working. Okay. So he's been a consultant within the health industry across Australia for the last 14 years, and he's absolutely loving it. So you think that uh, uh, he may himself have probably, back when he was making those kind of choices, picked a business rather than health orientation. I think he would have done, yes. Yeah, right, okay, that's mm. interesting. You know, I've got a very similar background. My mm. dad was a professor of pharmacy and my mum was a nurse. Uh, and at no point did they ever encourage me to move into health at all. It just wasn't even talked about. Um, 
Whereas I know many people who are a doctor who's the son of a doctor who's the son of mm-hmm. a doctor and their brothers are doctors and their sisters. You know, um, it's funny how, you know, the world works. Well, I'm not quite sure why it is or whether this the universe is pointing us in that direction. But my three children, my son's doing a um, Master's of Public Health. Okay. My daughter's in her first year of midwifery. Right. And my other son's graduating as a Bachelor of Exercise in Sports Science. Wow. So it's almost as if they've got the whole chain from birth through to through death and then macro health as well. Right. So uh, I am the missing uh, generation, if you like. You are the missing link. But I'm okay with that. <laughs> so uh, any part-time jobs while you are at high school? Yeah, I had a lot. Um, there was a... One of the best things I, I think I ever did was uh, when we were doing high school, they were given the uh, career um, advice and, mm-hmm. and career placements. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that stage, I was looking at either an accountant or a lawyer in their business space. And I thought, well, if I go there, oh, it's going to be boring. I'm just going to be filing stuff. I'm going to be going getting someone coffee or whatever it might be. So I said, I really need a part-time job. Mm. So I put my hand up and said, can I go and work at a menswear store? Mm. To which the teacher went, why would you want to do that? I said, well, and I explained it. He said, that actually makes sense. So I got an interim or intern gig at one of the local menswear stores in so town. So what, what was your motivation for menswear? Oh, just because I like fashion and okay. uh, it, was a, it was a good gig. And the, right. store, the store was the fancy one in town, right? Yep. And we're talking mid-80s, so okay. fancy was fluoros and uh, big shoulders. Right. Uh, and after the uh, school intern program finished, they offered me a job. Mm-hmm. So I got to work. So that was how I got my first first job. Measuring men up for their suits and... Yeah, it was quite funny. It was uh, The town I lived in was uh, very Māori um, populated. It was in the central or northern North Island. Right. Um, if you know the Benji Marshall story, it's a place called Whakatani. Right. And... Uh, the town had quite a large um, gang issue with mm-hmm. the Mongol mob and the, those boys. Right. They'd come in and they'd want some jeans, right? And the bravado of the, uh, the bikies when they took their pants off and had to try on new jeans, it was changed. They were like little little babies in mum's hands. <laughs> it, was, it was quite funny. I got to know quite a few of them and... Uh, they used to protect me when I went out drinking and uh, things like that, so it was quite a nice environment. My, my only real insight into that was watching uh, one of the warriors, Jake the Moose, yeah. and uh, far out, that is a, you know, a scary subculture. Yeah. The, the, the domestic, I think it was sort of overemphasized or overstressed mm-hmm. the domestic stuff, right, which is something that um, I don't particularly like. Right. Um, because there's a real cultural um, tie with the Māori people. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's beautiful. I was fortunate enough to play rugby, and so that got me into quite a lot of the Māori um, culture within that area. Mm-hmm. And I, I love it. I just mm-hmm. absolutely do, and I have, I've got friends to this day who are uh, strong Māori. So. Okay, so we can come over for a hungi at your house? That's right. Really? Right. Yeah. You yeah. do a few hungies in the backyard? Um, I don't do it in the dirt anymore. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I enjoy a good hungy. Oh, good stuff. So, um, okay, so uh, you're at high school, you're working in the menswear store, so what happened then? Uh, we left. Right. We came to Australia. Uh-huh. Uh, and we came to Tasmania, uh, and at that time uh, I was advised that my 
New Zealand high school qualifications wouldn't get me into university and, uh, and yeah. so I was trying to do a, a two-year matriculation process within one year in Tasmania um, but I decided to apply for TAS Uni just mm. to see whether that was correct and they mm. said you yeah, come on down mm. so I had a choice do I go to university one year early or do I stay at school mm-hmm. so I had my gap year right I dropped analysis and statistics yeah. and I dropped a whole of other subjects and I did English literature okay and I did health and recreation and the health and recreation took me all through Tasmania and wilderness tours mm. and whitewater rafting we did um, kayaking down the rivers of northern Tasmania learned mm-hmm. to scuba dive play golf oh, it was awesome. a great year 12 right yeah. and uh, at the same time I was introduced to AFL mm-hmm. and uh, in the uh, playground or quad at lunchtime, mm-hmm. I was constantly uh, being smashed as a rugby player. Right. And there was this one um, guy that used to annoy the hell out of me because he just kept coming up over the top and outmarking me and just bumping me off and all the rest of it. And it wasn't until some time later. Uh, where I kept almost having nightmares of go Lynchy, go Lynchy, go Lynchy, <laughs> and it, it was it was Alistair Lynch. Right, he went to school with, him. and I caught up with him a few years later, and made fun of him. He said, "Oh, that's like you, that rah rah poofed the Lynchy." <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose I don't know, uh, but you know the indigenous Australians um, yeah. uh, love their AFL, and so you probably went from playing with Maoris. To playing with um, uh, Tasmanian Indigenous AFL players. Well, there weren't many, right, um, in Tasmania, uh, and in fact, I played rugby in Tassie. Okay, right. So um, that was a lot of fun. Um, there weren't many rugby teams in Tasmania, mm. and in fact, the team I played in there was uh, it was just a uh, senior side. Mm-hmm. So as a 17-year-old playing in the senior rugby in Tassie, um, they put me out on the outside centre in the wing rather than in the right. forwards. But I got some good experiences there because I ended up going to the 86 um, Australian Schoolboys Champs in okay. Adelaide and I had a lot of time, a lot of fun playing there. It was, right. it was good fun. Good stuff. And so let's get into your professional career. Okay. How did things unfold? Uh, funny story. Um, the, I went to university in uh, Rocky mm-hmm. or Campton. Your and father had moved there. Yeah, like, dad, okay. dad right. moved there, yeah. And uh, I went down the path of applying for all the big four accounting firms and mm-hmm. in the audit group and the rest of it. And I got, got some real favourable response at Anderson's, but I, I, didn't, I, I missed the cut. Subsequently found out it was because I was a Kiwi and they were concerned oh, really? about my, uh, my ability to work. Right? Uh, really? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, anyway. But as it turned out, the insolvency group had a vacancy come up and mm-hmm. so they went back through the people that they'd said no to and I got the gig mm-hmm. and I'm so glad it happened that way uh, because the late 80s early 90s in Brisbane and Solvency was a bit of a boom and, mm-hmm. and it was a real trial by fire the learning curve the experiences the uh, things that you had to do uh, just amazing uh, it's a, it was a real cultural um, and an interesting time mm-hmm. Uh, I got, um, in the mid-90s, I managed, I had 12 months over in the UK and loved that. With the firm? With the firm, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, did some big scale work, uh, you know, 
working with the guys out of the London office on a couple of big retailers. Mm-hmm. Looked after a coal mine in South Yorkshire with um, with a big uh, coal mining concern. They were big scale operations, and it was there where I came in contact with a couple of guys that I work with on the um, distress company consulting. Mm-hmm. Back in Brisbane, when I came back, uh, things had changed. The uh, the banks were holding on to more work. Um, the uh, administration with, uh, um, regime started to kick in so that the unsecured creditors were doing a lot more work. And uh, so I started to have a bit of a think, I, I'm not sure I want to stay here. And, mm. and uh, we did a, just, uh, did a um, pre-lend review for a client, one of the banks, mm. who were looking to borrow some more money. And I went in there and I went, you don't need more money, you just need to know how to manage the cash that you're, mm. that's circling through your business. And so there was a comment there for a couple of months. They said, do you want to come on as CFO? It was a publicly listed company. And I went, yeah. And they said, do you want to be company secretary as well? And so I know nothing about mm. public company. And I said, that's right, we'll, we'll send you to school. Uh, so when I presented to the particular bank the report, I said, they don't need any money. And by the way, here's my new business card. Right. And to which the um, the banker at the time said, well, that's the most confidence I've had in ever receiving a, <laughs> a report from an accounting firm. Um, so I went there and that was where I started to get the real love for the discipline of working in a consulting practice mm. with the, the rough and tumble of working in a business. Mm. And you somewhat isolated and insulated when you're a consulting firm. You've got people to do this for you, you've got people to do that for you, mm. and if something goes wrong, well, you've got people to mm. around you. But when you're there on your own and you're the, you're the last person that has to make the decision and mm. everyone in that organisation tends to live or die by what you decide to do, especially one which does have cash flow issues, you hone your decision-making process mm. and you adopt the view that... Um, the worst decision is no decision at all, mm-hmm. uh, and you you tend to be running pretty fast to get things right. Mm-hmm. Um, after a few years, um, the company had no bank debt. Um, we were doing really well. We posted a profit on mm-hmm. the exchange, uh, and everyone would go, "Well, that's great." So no, it wasn't. I was bored. Right. Right. And uh, there were two things I could do: find something which got me interested and challenged mm. me mm. or create a problem within the organisation and then go from there. Right. I elected not to do the second one sure. so I moved somewhere else. I imagine, I imagine that does happen though. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah. I think the, uh, there are a breed of people that uh, like to have drama in their life and mm. so they create drama mm. so they can feel important. Yeah, and it's probably a, bit, a little bit too like uh, uh, university academics and so on who um, are going for um, grants to do work, you, you know, they're not going to get grants for work where everything's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, this is a big problem, whether it's environmental or whatever it might be. Uh, and so problems can be inflated to uh, uh, give credence to their desire to get grants to solve these problems. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm. I mean, they make it when, you, when you're applying for uh, grants, there's a the, the social good is one of the things that get put into perspective. Right. And so the more that you can emphasise the social good, mm-hmm. the better. Uh, mm-hmm. I've um, spent a lot of time over the last five years um, applying for grants okay. and going before government organisations saying, please, sir, and 
you know, you just need to know which which words are the ones to sure. say and who to say it to. So. Uh-huh. Oh, well, well, that might be a topic for another podcast, <laughs> how to get grants with uh, Philip Barnes. So, okay, so uh, so what happened then? Well, I, I, um, I, I was very lucky in that I managed to take a CFO role at a startup, mm-hmm. technology startup uh, in Brisbane here, mm-hmm. and they were doing some really clever things with GPS signals on um, agricultural equipment. Okay. So that's where I got a real love for new the startups, technology, and they wanted to um, move over to the US. Mm-hmm. And they had to raise 20 odd million dollars as well for their, their next stage. So that, were, that was again a running fast. I spent a lot of time over in the US setting up their offices in uh, Fresno and California and Denver, mm-hmm. um, getting all the structures in place, getting the people employed, getting all the sales tax and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff sorted out. Uh, but also managing the growth of the business and the cash flow and trying to protect that and, uh, and raising 25 million. Mm. So that three years gave me a really good sniff of what I like to do and mm. what I enjoy doing. And uh, there was a lot of lessons learned and there was a lot of successes in terms of, geez, I was, that was a good outcome, that was mm-hmm. a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, the sad thing about all that, though, in, in the period before and after I joined there was that um, uh, my marriage dissolved. Okay. Uh, and with the three kids being fairly young, um, I sat down and I said, look, this is, this is exciting. Mm. I'm enjoying this. It's a challenge. But there's no way I can live this life if I want to reconcile. Right. And so I had to make... Some because you're just working massive hours and... Oh, Yeah. I would, um, I'd work the Brisbane um, office, mm. I would go home, try and get to the gym, mm-hmm. um, but then I'd be back on and the US office would kick in, right. and so I'd be on the phone t- talking to them, dealing with them, and then I'd shut down, I'd get up in the morning and the half an hour, hour drive in the, into, the, into the office, I'd be on the phone to the US guys, mm-hmm. making sure before they turned their lights off they were okay. So it was quite a big cycle. Mm. As I said, great fun, enjoyed mm. it, we got lots done, it was uh, interesting, mm. I was a 30 year old, young 30 year old. Right. Um, but it wasn't conducive to family life. Mm-hmm. Right. So I made a decision to leave there and take a job which I thought was going to be um, better for me mm-hmm. um, in terms of work-wise. And keep the marriage intact. Well, the marriage wasn't intact, I'd, we'd been separated for a few years. By right, then. okay. So it was to attempt any sort of reconciliation. Uh-huh. So um, in, then I moved to be the uh, general manager of um, uh, William Buck, mm-hmm. which is the old Hall Chadwick. Mm-hmm. Back in consulting. Yeah, that's right, and that's exactly right. So that was interesting in that um, there were some really good people there, mm. um, and I learned a lot about the consulting business and uh, and how to look after clients and mm-hmm. how not to look after clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also gave me time and space to reconcile. Unfortunately enough, my wife said, yeah, let's, have it. let's give this a crack. And oh, good. So that was uh, 14 years ago, so we're still happily <laughs> giving it a crack. Um, you just had a sabbatical. That's right. Right. But if you reflect back on the story about I get bored quickly doing board, maintaining and monthly... Yeah. Um, uh, I remember talking to uh, my wife and we're sitting on the beach at a family family holiday 
And uh, she said, you're not really enjoying it. And I said, no, I'm not. Mm. She said, well, what do you want to do? So we sat down and we worked out what I enjoy doing, mm -hmm. what I'm good at doing, what I think people will pay me for. Mm -hmm. And that's where the CFO Insight right. um, was born. Uh -huh. And uh, I then went back to the, uh, the senior partner at uh, William Buck and to his credit, amazingly generous man, amazingly mm -hmm. generous man. And that he allowed me the opportunity to start my consulting business, mm -hmm. but he still gave me a couple of days a week mm -hmm. work mm. Um, because there's still things to be done there. Sure. Uh, and so that that was enormously helpful to me. And mm -hmm. I, every time I see him in the street, I feel like I want to give, come up and give him a hug because that was a great gesture on his part. Yeah. Didn't have to do that, but it made a big difference for me. Yeah, I, uh, that first few months of no cash flow and having the heart in the throat thinking is this going to be a success, having been there myself, it is uh, not for the faint-hearted. That's exactly right. Right. And so um, uh, how did you kick off CFO Insight? What, how did you go to the market? Well, funny that. I I just had the meeting with uh, with Greg Wonchap, you mm -hmm. know his name? I know Greg very yeah, well. Yeah. And uh, I had a big smile on my face and I felt buzzing and I couldn't sit at my desk. So I thought I'd go and go for a walk around the street and uh, just to sort of chill and go, oh shit, what have I done now? Right. right. And uh, I was standing at the traffic lights waiting to cross the road and there was a guy on the other side of the road waving at me. And I remembered him from days at Anderson's. Mm -hmm. He walked across the street, shook hands, and we were just basically reacquainting ourselves. And I told him what I was now doing. He said, oh, fantastic. My brother, sister, and I have just bought the business of my father. We need someone to give us a hand. Right. So that was my first gig. Uh-huh. And I often say I did it walking the streets. Right. <laughs> So you're working actually on the Crowhall-Worth business? No, no, no. no. The, um, the guy I met in the street, right. uh, he had just bought... Oh, uh, he, I see. His brother and his sister had just right. bought a business. So, so, so I must have missed something. So how, does, how did Greg fit in the picture? Oh, Greg um, was my boss at Crowhall-Worth. Right. Right. And so he was the guy that generously allowed right, me right, right. to have okay, a conversation sure. with him. Right. And... So I had, a, had some time locked away with those guys just to sort of wind down. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> so this guy I met on the street was my first, right. first gig. And, then and what sort of business was that? That was a grain silo manufacturer. They had okay. factories up and down the east coast of, um, mm -hmm. of Queensland mm -hmm. and into northern New South Wales. Mm -hmm. Good little business, actually. Right. It really was. And so um, how long did you work with him for? Uh, over a period of about 12 months. Right. There was some intensive stuff at the beginning and then just winded it back. Okay. Uh, and then other jobs just came from going to networking groups, mm -hmm. um, just tapping my network. Um, at that time, and we're talking uh, mid-2000s, so 2006, mm -hmm. there were still um, distressed companies around mm -hmm. quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And so a fair proportion of the work I did was on companies that had major cash flow issues mm -hmm. because of the market, because of their business um, models. Mm -hmm. And they had a few other issues in terms of employees. And so I got quite a lot of um, referral work out of the workout groups mm -hmm. in the banks, mm -hmm. some of the contacts I had at Anderson days. And so they would, they would turn up to a, a client or customer and say, you need some help. Mm -hmm. We can't tell you who to go to. Right. But here are four business cards. Right. And every now and again, mine would be one of those four. Right. And, and, and mm -hmm. they're saying it from the perspective of, 
you know, you're not meeting your obligations to the bank. You need to go and get stuff sorted out. Well, it's more a case of you're making it really hard for us to love you. Right, okay. So you need to sort some stuff out. We can't tell you what to do, we yeah. but we, we suggest that you right. you get someone that can come and help you. Okay, right. sure. And I always made a, a, a mental effort that when I got that phone call, nothing else was more important than dealing with that. Because when you're in a competitive situation in that type mm. of thing, mm. Um, you needed to get in front of them straight away. Mm-hmm. And so I won a lot of work by getting mm-hmm. in front of them and mm-hmm. talking to them and, mm-hmm. and understanding. And uh, so I won quite a lot of work that way. And mm-hmm. Some of them are really good jobs, mm-hmm. really good jobs. Mm-hmm. Some, um, all of them, with the exception of one, um, all got out and got back into the main bank and mm-hmm. very happy. So. Okay. And uh, I mentioned that you're not only wanting to work with companies in distress, I, you'd want to work with companies who are also in good shape and, you know, just need some uh, steady hands to guide them, you know, through their next period of growth. Well, that's right. I mean, the, there's, a, there's some been real distinct periods within mm. CFO Inside. The early stage was distressed company. Now, mm. part of that was just the market at the time and mm-hmm. part of that was because that was my network that I was tapping. Mm-hmm. But in more recent years, it's been um, startups and companies wanted to go into the US um, and technology in particular right but also those that are profitable Mm -hmm. they're looking to do something different they're looking to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are coming across their desk Mm -hmm. so I'm seeing a real a real shift in um, in what what's required of CFO Mm inside at the moment I have no distressed companies on my book right okay right They're, they're all they're all good and they're looking at various different challenges in terms of growth or commercialisation. Right. So, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that in the main, regardless of type of industry, businesses typically are facing the same problems. Mm-hmm. So what, are, what would you categorise some of those problems as being um, with the people who come to you looking for help? Well, firstly, they come to me and they explain to me what their problem is. Yeah. But in fact, what more often than not they're explaining as a symptom sure and so you have to ask a few more a few more detailed questions yeah most of the issue is that they're not extracting enough margin from what they're selling mm-hmm. and that could either be a pricing issue um, but more often than not it's a structural issue in terms of how they package their product up uh, one client came to me a few years ago and said Phil we just need you to slap lipstick on this pig so we can sell it right and then when I started to unpack and mm. um, ask a few questions, they were a tech company that were generating mid-30s in mar- gross margin. Mm. And that's just ridiculous. Right? Ridiculously good. No, ridiculously bad at oh, gross okay, margin right. level. Because if you're selling software, mm. ostensibly you're selling software, although there was a hardware component, you should be doing a lot better than that. You sure. should be up in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. And so that first drew my eye, saying, well, why is the case? And the case was that their software was being embedded in hardware. They were locked into a contract with a crowd out of the US Mm. for their hardware. So their product would only work on that hardware. Mm. Um, So all the margin was going to the US hardware supplier and their software was... So every time they did Mm. a price reduction, they are effectively reducing their, Mm -hmm. um, their software value. So went back to them and I said, look, you need to change the way that you structure your product up. Mm-hmm. And so you need to de-shackle yourself from the hardware provider and either build your own hardware or find someone that you can do it for you. 
so that you really um, uh, leverage the value of your software. And mm -hmm. they did that. Mm -hmm. And so they got to a point where they increased their price. They managed to get their software to be a greater proportion of the price. Mm -hmm. And they ended up with margins in the mid-70s. Mm -hmm. And that made a big difference for that particular company. So it became a good-looking pig. Yeah, that's exactly right. Geez, <laughs> the lipstick does. <laughs> um, but that's often the case, though. Right. There's um, a client will say to you, "This is the problem. I've got a real problem with mm. um, with stock, mm -hmm. for example." And you go and have a look, and you unpack it. It's not actually stock. It's just that their layout of their their factory floor or their warehouse floor is right. poor. Okay. Uh, or they don't have an appropriate um, forecasting tool within their production. Mm. Right. Some clients would invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in stock just to fix a problem. Mm -hmm. But if they were a little clever about how they bought stock and where they bought it from and mm -hmm. those sort of things, mm -hmm. then they can take a lot of cash out of mm -hmm. their inventory. And so that's, that's often the case. One, one client in particular who was frustrating uh, was a construction client. And uh, he would rule of thumb, put his thumb in the air as he was consulting for a construction job, he would pretty much just put his thumb in the air, see which way the wind's going and put a number down mm. in terms of quoting for the job and couldn't right. work out why he wasn't making much money. Mm. And so... So he was winning work, but it is too cheap. He was winning work, but he hadn't thought deeply enough. Mm. And then he delegated that responsibility to someone and that person didn't do nearly enough good job job. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time with that client unpacking how his product should be, how he really should be pricing himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Still maintaining a position where he was competitive, but being a little clever about what he does. Yeah. Um, so they actually reduced the revenue they did um, based on their prior years, but they made a lot more money mm -hmm. by doing that. Okay. So it just, it's just about asking questions about how do you, you know, there's, there's some fairly fundamental questions that you ask, and that is, who buys your product mm. and why? Mm -hmm. What do you sell? Mm -hmm. And how do you make money? And they are the three first questions I ask a client. They'll try and sabotage the meeting by saying, but this is my problem, this is my problem. Yeah. But you have to sort of go back and say, look, just trust me, this, this, this will help us. Right? right, so who buys your product and why? Mm -hmm. What do you sell and how do you make money? Correct. And, and do you find businesses largely can answer that fairly easily? No. I wouldn't have thought so. No. Because often they go to the... Um, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good question because if they can answer it properly, mm. then you know that your chance of success in that engagement is higher because right. there's a certain understanding. Yeah. If they look at you with blank eyes and you've got a, you've got a problem, you're going to have to be a serious amount of education as well as business yeah. um, shaping going on. Right. Um, the, the reason why is that they become too literal. Mm -hmm. right? um, say, for example, you ask a um, manufacturer of um, a widget, you mm -hmm. say, and, and a manufacturer of a... Um, watch a digital watch mm -hmm. or smart watch or whatever they call mm -hmm. them, the Fitbits. Right. So what do you, what what do you sell? Mm. So we sell a timepiece with a bit of a fitness tracker. Yeah. So well, no, that's not actually what they sell. Right. They're selling an information um, to that person. You're selling 
their level of understanding of how their business is, how their um, their body is working. Mm. You give them confidence about um, uh, what's happening. You give them clarity on on their body movement and all this. Yeah, it's just the watch is the mechanism or the means to do that. Right. Sure. And so often I say, oh, we sell watches. Mm. But as you start to understand why mm. people buy them mm-hmm. and who buys them, and the, you then come mm-hmm. back to, well, so what are you actually really selling? Yeah. And once you get them to think like that, mm. then all of a sudden the future opportunities that exist within those customers mm. or those mm. clients take on a different perspective. Mm. It's a bit like that story about Kodak where I believe Kodak actually invented the digital camera. Mm-hmm. But they said, we we're in the film business mm-hmm. um, rather than saying we're in the memory business. Yep. Um, and if they'd said we're in the memory business, then that could have taken them in an entirely different direction. But um, yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I see it in my own industry as well. What do you sell? Well, sell recruitment. Um, well, the, the recruitment industry is under massive pressure you know, from uh, LinkedIn and uh, other tools which are more automated and so on so it's about reinventing yourself and adding more value to the client in order to remain relevant um, but you know I, I think uh, I don't put me on the spot but I'd probably <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd enjoy you know unpacking those questions for my business too yeah because yeah. because uh, I know as a as someone who's who's recruited for um, for jobs mm. uh, and I know that my clients, when they've um, had had to recruit for jobs or had to recruit it for them, what they're really looking for is a, that problem to be solved. Yeah, um, and 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 confidence that that particular area is going to be now looked after. Mm-hmm. Because they go to the market because either there's an opportunity because they're growing, mm-hmm. or they go to the market because they have a desperate need mm-hmm. for a hole to be filled. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not the commodity of just recruiting that they're after, mm. it's the peace of mind. Mm, absolutely. And so I know now from our conversations that uh, you, you've been working in the space of being a consultant, but more and more now you're actually joining the board of some of these companies. Yeah. So you've got a different type of engagement. To talk, talk a bit about that. Well, a couple of things. One is, um, uh, as a consultant to these SMEs, mm. you... I've often presented, in fact I do present to the boards, um, the two or three boards a month. Mm. And you sit there and you go, you can see what a really good board is Mm. and you can see what a poor board is. Mm -hmm. And uh, the good boards have a balance, have a balance of governance person but they also have a balance of business. And a good board has someone that uh, has a board member on there that doesn't get caught in the detail. Right. And often small businesses are, that's their biggest issue. Yeah. Because these guys have done, run their own businesses mm-hmm. so they get invited into other boards mm-hmm. because they're successful mm-hmm. but they get caught up in the minutiae and they, they mm-hmm. don't do it. If you've got a good chairman, then it makes it easier mm-hmm. but if you don't, then they tend mm-hmm. to sabotage the meeting. So it's about getting within that conversation mm. it's being able to have a voice in that environment other than the part-time CFO mm-hmm. reporting what's happening having it I've had it a couple of times um, and I've enjoyed it because the outcome when everyone has an opportunity to present their view as equal directors it makes a bigger much better outcome mm. and, and it's enjoyable mm. right mm. 
The other reason too is that um, I'm finding that the level of contribution I can make um, at a board level is a better than I can now make as a CFO consultant. In, in what respect? Um, in the respect that as a CFO consultant, um, the the level of activity can drag you down stream mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of the um, thing. For mm -hmm. example, I've got a client today who I'll have to go and do their monthly pays right. and do their monthly payment of suppliers sure. and things like that. And, okay. and that takes that takes a couple of hours to do, right? Yeah. And you sit there doing that game. Would I rather be sitting there in front of a board and senior executives talking about how they're going mm. against plan and do we mm. need to change the plan? I said, that's much where I prefer, mm. that's where I much prefer doing. The other stuff's necessary, um, but I really like to try and shift that away. Right. So I've got a team that I can bring in to shift that away, mm -hmm. but it's, just, it's that extra bit. I think it's a better use of um, time yeah sure okay and also um, the, the SMEs who come to me and they, we sit and have a coffee and they have mm. a chat and they go well I know Phil that you know we've got nothing working at the moment but I really enjoy these chats one of these days you probably charge me for them right um, because I get so much out of them much more than I'd get out of mm -hmm. other people that I talk to mm -hmm. and so when you have that type of feedback you go it'd be nice to have a structure where that can be yeah put in and do you find a lot of um, small uh, uh, companies, which are largely founder manager, um, do they have an appetite to have an external board? Or uh, I imagine a lot of the times that sort of clients or potential clients you talk to wouldn't even have a board. Uh, they don't have a board in, a, in what we consider to be a board. No, they have directors, but that's that's about it. In terms directors of, being equity partners. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, the answer is no. Mm. Um, the, they know that something needs to be there that sits outside them, mm. Mm. Um, but the type of clients that um, it's the real small side of the SME level, mm -hmm. no, and they don't need it. They just need good advisors a to just keep them on or, the yeah, yeah. correct, keep them on the straight and narrow. What I'm really referring to are those ones which sit above the twenty mil mark, right. um, that have risks. They have a large number of employees. So they mm -hmm. need to make sure those employees are looked after. They mm -hmm. have um, issues in terms of cash flow and mm -hmm. managing the cash flow, getting those insolvency issues sorted out. Um, but also with opportunities for growth mm -hmm. and to make sure that there is, because a lot of those those types of boards, they have a good legal representation, mm -hmm. governance. Um, they have the founder probably sitting in there as well. Yeah, have other people, but there's no. One that says, hang on, from a business perspective, this doesn't smell right. Mm. Or someone that can say, I'm just going to go and do a little bit of a calcove off to the side here because mm. these numbers don't seem to be right. Mm. Um, or just intuitively your gut just goes, yeah, something's wrong here. Mm. Or in, in the case of a uh, client recently, they were transitioning out of construction and into um, their biz core business. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I said, right, I think that's the right move to make, um, mm -hmm. partly because I was promoting it, but I, it mm -hmm. was the right move to make. Um, but I said, what you now need to be really careful about is that you're going to have a two-month hiatus of mm -hmm. cash. You're going to have a big cash hole. Mm -hmm. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've seen it before. We'll work through it before you can work through it. You just need to be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And they all looked at me. And there's some senior... Um, 
directors in that environment mm. and they went oh so what does what does it mean so I explained to them what it meant sure enough within the time frame that we predicted there mm -hmm. was a hole mm -hmm. because they'd taken some actions it wasn't as much as we thought mm -hmm. but there's still half a million dollars worth of cash that they had to find mm. through that period and it's that type of um, knowledge and experience mm. and skill that I would like to be able to share mm -hmm. with those, those people mm -hmm. um, because I think there's a value in it I, oh, definitely and I enjoy it I, yeah. I enjoy helping these guys succeed. Yeah, and um, I think that there is definitely a gap in the market. I mean, I have a business coach, uh, and you know, he is fantastic. Uh, he predominantly will look after businesses with turnovers from say one to five million dollars, mm -hmm. um, and then you've got you know boards of very significant listed and, and private um, organisations. But that space that you're talking about is sort of the twenty million dollar. Um, uh, turnover businesses, of which there are many. Um, you know, in fact, uh, I imagine there's thousands of companies. Um, they probably don't have the mindset that they need a true traditional style board, but they need somebody with the acumen who can help them to, uh, you know, uh, move through changes and and growth and so on in a way that's uh, intelligent and uh, is. Um, has some certainty of success. Mm. Um, so if we sort of look five years into the future, ideally, you know, what would your world look like then? Um, my world would look like the, the CFO uh, consulting practice is still going, yeah. maybe under a different name. Mm -hmm. um, I'll have uh, partners in that. I'll have a guy that looks after the low-end accounting Part of it, yeah, uh, up to what I probably just described as a um, financial controller mm -hmm. type role. Mm -hmm. I'll have a guy um, or a, a lady um, looking after the um, distressed company consulting part, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll be doing a lot of the CFO stuff. Mm -hmm. But that would occupy half my time. Mm -hmm. um, most of my time, or the other half of the time, will be those board type roles, mm -hmm. um, and where I spend time and have some decent amount of time to devote to it. One of the successes of CFO Insight is that I haven't stretched myself too thin over the years. I've maintained a small number of clients mm -hmm. because the value of what we deliver is through the intimacy. Mm -hmm. And that's not um, cuddles and kisses with the clients. That's them being able to ring me up and say, Phil, I've got a problem with X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And knowing what they're talking about, right? Understanding what that means, rather than go, "Oh, can you just explain that to me again?" Mm -hmm. And so then, then the conversation straight away is is right to the point. It's mm. you've got your understanding about other things in the business that mm. may or may not be impacted by right. a decision made on that particular point. Yeah, you know, the risk of unintended consequences is mm. high when you're not intimate about the business. Mm. And so mm. um, that will be the same for for the boards. If you if it went onto a board, it would be Full commitment and mm -hmm. um, understanding, so they mm -hmm. they wouldn't uh, wouldn't get too concerned about that. Fantastic. Well, look, certainly, if uh, people are listening to the podcast and they would like to uh, engage with you, I imagine they can reach out to you via LinkedIn or yep. um, your website. Uh, certainly, I'm more than happy to facilitate an introduction if anybody uh, uh, is is interested. So let's just before we wind up, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about business today and your career and you know the the sort of uh, uh, your goals for the future and so on. But what about when you're not working? You know, you said you were all consumed by work 
uh, earlier in your career and made a sort of lifestyle choice to have a bit more uh, work-life flexibility. What, what, what are the things you like to do when you're not working? Well, I like to spend time with um, with my family. Yeah. Um, as a as a starter. Right. But I um I like to keep fit. Right? Um, and so I do a number of things with mates. Okay. Right? So there's a couple of really good organisations that have created, built, or, or become new within the last few years, mm. which cater for guys our age. Right. right? Um, who busy don't have the time, don't mm. want to go to gyms with mirrors on them, Right. Um, get red in the face when we suck our stomachs in or when we go <laughs> past uh, those. But we like to throw a ball around or we right. like to banter with mates. And yeah. So I've managed, I've been lucky enough to find a couple of places like, okay. like that. And what so, are they called? Um, the guy, the, the one crowd called Ology. Okay. And that was formed by a financial planner on the north side of Brisbane, a guy called Neil McDonald. Right. Um, but that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, he has uh, three groups throughout the week. And it's a matter of going to a park, mm. throwing a ball around, right. and having fun with your mates. Right. So it's not doing 50 burpees. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, it absolutely is not. It, right. We, I've had a fitness tracker on me a couple of times, and you do... 4K and just sure. like jogging around. Yeah. But you've got a football, you've got an AFL ball, you've got an NFL ball, you've got a frisbee, you've got right. a small ball. Then they, you honour the sport with the ball you've got. Okay. But oh, I'll tell you what, the, the carry on and the banter and the sledging, it's just so much fun. It, right. Really, so I enjoy that. Uh, and then there's a little more formalised one with a crowd called Night Fitness. Okay. Um, and they, do, they run men's group programs mm. where you go three times a week and you, mm-hmm. uh, you, you join up with a group of guys and so mm-hmm. the guys I've met through that are some top blokes and right. again you know banter and carry on so it's all men there's no women involved correct right okay. and no mirrors anywhere right. you know you can all have a bit of fun yeah so I can't say that I've lost a lot of weight but I've got stronger and I've got a lot fitter so that's, well, the, that's the main thing I, th- I saw a meme on um, uh Facebook this morning, true love is getting fatter together. <laughs> and yeah, uh, exactly I, right. I certainly don't like looking in the mirror at my body at 50, but uh, I decided 2019, year of the body, year to get serious about losing some weight yeah. and uh, and uh, getting a bit healthy because far out, you know, you start to feel it at 50. And uh, that's when some of the, the problems start to show up that just uh, you need to have a bit of a reality check on how much you drink and how much, uh, you know, fatty food you eat and so on. Well, that's right. And that's where these these businesses I was talking about, they've come from that. They've mm. come from that need. And both of those two have approached it a slightly different way. And right. both of them I love. You know? yeah, so right. oh, I encourage awesome. you to seek them out because yeah, they sure. are good. And uh, off to um, the Sunshine Coast in the new yes. year for, mm-hmm. a, for a bit of recreation. Yeah. Is that a place... Um, that you go to the same place every time, or oh, the same location. Right. Uh, we don't have a place up there. We rent a pet-friendly place. Oh yeah. And so um, we take our dog. We've now got two dogs. Right. So we take both of them up this year, and okay. it's at Coolum. Right. And it's just fantastic. Yeah, it's lovely part of the world. Coolum. Just relaxing. Oh uh, well, uh, I'm off to Byron Bay tomorrow, and apparently there's a massive tropical storm coming. Yeah. So uh, I hope that uh, we get at least a little bit of sunshine, but it's not looking very good. Well, that incidental exercise walking on the beach will help. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, well, Philip, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate uh, uh, you coming in for a chat, and have a fantastic afternoon.
thanks for sure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.